Well, um, if you know me, you know this about me. It's no, no new news. Um, but one thing that I really enjoy doing is, is reading. I really like to read books. And I especially like to read fiction books. Over the past few years, I got, I've gotten more and more into reading and really enjoying fiction books and even just like simply allowing myself to be entertained by good fiction books. Now, I don't always read the highest quality books. Like, sometimes entertainment value is, is maybe a higher value for me than um, classical literary, literary value. Um, and so one, one aspect of fiction books that I've discovered about myself that I really like are unexpected plot twists, right? Um, Robin mentioned last week, I don't even remember why he mentioned it now as I'm thinking about it, but he mentioned how much I like Harry Potter. So some people came up to me after the service and I'm like, I think my like, my love for Harry Potter is like pretty, pretty normal. Like I don't think it's like an excessive love for Harry Potter, but I, I really do like Harry Potter books. And so if you've, I won't give anything away if you haven't read the stories or if you haven't seen the movies, but you've had plenty of time at this point. Um, seriously, it's been a lot of, I don't even know how many years. Uh, but one thing that I love about the Harry Potter books uh, are the unexpected plot twists and the twists and turns with different characters and all those sorts of things. And so it didn't strike me at first, but the more I sat with and the more I read these seven verses in Acts chapter 14, I began to notice that these few verses are, at least on a literary level, they're filled with some pretty dramatic plot twists, some pretty sharp turns in every single verse. And so they've become very interesting um, to me. But I've also realized, like even though these are, narrative accounts, stories of things that took place hundreds and hundreds of years ago, I've been struck by how relevant they are to us in 2019 here in Memphis, Tennessee. So I'm, I'm very excited to dig in with y'all and, and see some of, these, some of these sharp turns and plot twists together. Um, so first, uh, so with that said, let me, let me just give a little bit of a flow since there are some, some plot twists and sharp turns, a little bit of a flow for the morning so we can stay together. Um, if you've already closed your Bible, you might wanna even open it back up because we're just gonna look uh, sort of old school verse by verse uh, through this chapter. And so we're gonna see in verse one, um, we're gonna set the stage a little bit. We're gonna see some important context. And then in verse two, there's gonna be a sharp plot twist and we're gonna look at poison to their minds. What does that mean? And then uh, in verse three, there's something very surprising that Paul and Barnabas do. And then finally in verses four, five, six, and seven, um, there is a unsatisfying ending that we'll get to talk about together. So first, look, look with me at verse one. Um, Paul and Barnabas arrive at this ancient city called Iconium, which is modern day Konya, Turkey, in the southwest corner of Turkey. It's a very large metropolitan city to this day, Iconium. Paul and Barnabas arrive there, and in verse one, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says that they went as usual into the Jewish synagogue where they spoke so effectively that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So let me show you a map. Maps are, um, I don't always use maps when I read the Bible, but uh, I find them very helpful the times that I do study maps, especially with sort of a narrative story, narrative account like this one. So if you look at the map, um, 
These chapters in the book of Acts are classically called Paul's first missionary journey. And so you see the arrow is kind of tracing Paul's missionary journey. We started a few weeks ago. It's, it's sort of confusing because there are two Antiochs, and they're not very far apart. So that's like, just let your head be wrapped around that, and it'll be, make a lot more sense. Um, so Paul and Barnabas start here in Antioch of Syria, and then they travel down uh, into Cyprus, the big island there near the bottom of the map. And then they travel up to Perga, and then up to another Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. And then that's the story we read last week. From there, they travel over to Iconium, um, about 80 miles where we find ourselves this week. So Iconium uh, is uh, in the Roman province of Galatia. Um, It's not predominantly Jewish, but we see, just like Paul and Barnabas always do, that they show up and go to the Jewish synagogue. So there's at least some sort of a minority Jewish presence there in the city. Now, the city is actually in some ways, in some ways it's very different, but in, in, in a couple of ways, it's, it's actually similar to Memphis. Um, it was an important city in the Roman world because it was, the in, it was at the intersection of some, some very important commercial roads. And so, of course, if you know anything about Memphis, you know that Memphis is, is a very important um, national and international transportation hub, um, both via land and via air with with FedEx here. Um, But it was also an important city because very nearby, uh, there were um, very fertile plain lands. And so it was an important agricultural part of the Roman world, which of course we're very near to the Mississippi River and uh, the Mississippi and Arkansas deltas. So there's a lot of important agricultural plain land around us as well. Um, So that's, that's a sketch of where Paul and Barnabas arrived this week in Iconium. And we see, of course, in verse one, their usual rhythm. They're kind of establishing a rhythm for themselves. And so what they do is they show up, like I said, in the Jewish synagogue. And then like Robin emphasized last week, that was very important. They probably just like in Acts chapter 13, they probably wait until they're asked to speak. And when they're asked to speak, all we get this week is that they share a message and they share it so effectively that a great number of people, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, believe in that message. They buy into it. Um, Luke doesn't tell us this week exactly what it is they shared. They probably preached maybe the exact same sermon that they had preached just recently in Antioch that we read. If y'all were here last week, you remember reading a long text of scripture, reading Paul's sermon that he gave at Antioch. So they shared this message of Israel, the story of Israel, culminating in the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That's the story they shared. And so now look at the reaction. Look at verse two. So they share this message so effectively that a large number of people believe. Everyone who hears the message, and probably even some of those who don't hear the message, everyone is moved. Some people are moved in such a way that they buy into the message of hope in Jesus. And they want to believe, they want to turn, they want to bend to the knee, they want to bow to Jesus as Lord and King and Savior. So they're moved deeply. Others are moved deeply and they respond or react in a sort of fearful, bitter, rageful way. In fact, Luke says, and the language here is 
so interesting. Luke says that this latter group, reacting in their fear and bitterness and rage, they poisoned the minds of their brothers against Paul and Barnabas. They poisoned their minds. Robin told me this week that he was jealous uh, that I got to title the sermon Poisoned Minds. Um, It's just kind of a weird phrase. Um, Listen to how Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible, the message, listen to how he says this verse. But the unbelieving Jews worked up a whispering campaign against Paul and Barnabas, sowing mistrust and suspicion in the minds of the people in the street. They worked up a whispering campaign and poisoned the minds of the people in the street against Paul and Barnabas. The Greek phrase behind poisoned their minds literally means that they did harm to their souls. They did harm to their souls. They spoke deceitfully and slanderously, maliciously, in such a way that didn't lead to the building up of the hearts and souls of people, but it led to the tearing down of the hearts and souls of people. They did harm to their souls. We're going to circle back to this idea here in just a few minutes, but for now, let me share um, something that's been really, um, really powerful for me personally as I've tried to apply and reflect on this um, in my own life. And here's what I've realized. I've realized that all of us, just like these people in the first century world, except maybe even more so, we receive a million messages each day. We're just constantly bombarded with stuff. And so the question that struck me that I want to ask you is this. Who is it that you're listening to? Who are you listening to? You see, we are always being shaped or formed in some way. You're never static. You're always moving your heart. Your soul is always being shaped or formed in some way. You're either being formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, more and more into the human that you were created to be, flourishing and thriving in the world, fully alive and fully human in Jesus. You're either being formed more and more in that way, or you're being malformed, less and less of the human that you were created to be, further and further away from Jesus, less less alive. And perhaps one of the most significant ways that you're either being formed or malformed is who it is that you're listening to. Who's shaping you? Who's helping you answer the big questions in life? Like, who am I? Who is is God? What is the world? How is it that God feels about the world? How does God interact with the world? Who's shaping your answers to those sorts of big life questions? Listen to this wisdom from, um, from Dallas Willard. A little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's so important. So 
tune in to what Dallas Willard has to say to us. Who teaches you? Whose disciple are you honestly? One thing is sure, you are somebody's disciple. You learned how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule. For human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep learning from others how to live. Listen to this. Today, especially in Western cultures, we prefer to think that we are our own person. We make up our own minds. But that is only because we have been mastered by those who have taught us that, that we do or we should do that. Such individualism is a part of the legacy that makes us modern. But we certainly did not come by that individualistic posture through our own individual and independent insight into ultimate truth. Who is it that you're listening to? Who's shaping you around these big questions? And so I want to give you a practice, a practice. Um, Because what I've come to realize is perhaps as important as what you believe about these big questions in life is how you're being shaped around these big questions in life. Does that make sense? Perhaps as important as what you believe is what you're doing because what you're doing shapes what you believe. This is why an important part of what we're doing at Christ City uh, is these, these eight practices because we believe that you're always being formed as a human. Here's how Richard Rohr says it much better than I do. You do not think yourself into a new way of living as much as you live your way into a new way of thinking. So here's one practice that I'll give you today that you can employ in your life to start to live your way into a new way of thinking. And it sounds very simple, uh, but I think in 2019, it may be harder than ever. Um, The practice is simply to be aware. Be aware. Be aware. To be aware, and this is why it's so hard for us, to be aware, you have to be still. You have to be quiet. So there's this, you know how like you have special like places, like physical places that are special to you, maybe even like a little bit sacred. Um, there's this, this place that I've found um, that's kind of on a beach. It's flooded over right now, so you can't go find it and discover my own private sacred space. Um, it's flooded over, but it's, um, so out at the Wolf River, there are all these, these trails um, that Sarah Lawrence Allen told me about. I'm grateful for that. Um, And so running these trails, you can land on this little beach overlooking the Wolf River. And so I find myself there sometimes, and it's just a peaceful place where you can just be, and you can just kind of watch the water flow. You watch the way it's moving, watch the way it's moving around logs or big rocks. Maybe you've seen and you've just kind of watched the ocean like the waves coming in and then the waves going back out. And you just kind of watch it. So think about the way that you watch, you interact with bodies of water. You just observe it, right? You're just watching. You're curious. You're not judging. You're not critiquing. You're just watching. So this practice for you is to learn to be aware, to be curious in the same way about, about yourself, 
just kind of observe, just kind of listen, just kind of watch what's going on, like what you're taking in, what you're thinking, what's going on in your heart, just watch, just observe. In fact, I'd love, it's probably just me, I'd love to practice this right now for just a minute. We all indulge me. I have two little kids. So every moment of silence, even if it's with 200 other people, when I'm holding the microphone um, is, is super valuable for me. So we're going to be quiet. And as we are, I just want you to observe. Observe what's going on inside of you, in your head, in your heart. Don't judge, don't critique, just be aware. Now listen to what Willard goes on to write. He says, it is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, and sometimes we just can't face it. But it can also open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. So who are you listening to? Begin to practice being aware. Let's look back at the story in Acts chapter 14. So things for Paul and Barnabas are getting pretty dicey pretty quickly. Literally dangerous. Like it's becoming a dangerous situation for Paul and Barnabas as these unbelieving Jews in their fear and in their rage, work up a whispering campaign, poisoning the minds of people about Paul and Barnabas. And their response in verse three is very surprising to me. Verse three says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So I don't know about you, but my response in that sort of situation would be like things are getting pretty tense here. It might be time for me to keep on moving, like to move on to the next place. But Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas, they didn't just stay there, but they spent considerable time there. Luke seems to emphasize this amount of time, like the considerable length of time that Paul and Barnabas spent there at Iconium. Why? I've sat with that this week. Why in the world would they respond in such a way that seems to go against all the intuitions that we might have about staying alive and protecting yourself. Why would they respond in such a way? And I think one of the reasons why they choose to stay a considerable time is that Paul and Barnabas realized something very important that I think modern day evangelicals have forgotten um, that's hugely significant. So Paul and Barnabas realized that the message they're proclaiming, this message of hope and redemption in Jesus, that that message does not and can never travel in a vacuum. Communications 101 
tells us that messages never travel in a vacuum. There's always stuff. It's not like you're communicating in this sort of sterile, whitewashed laboratory. Instead, it's like you find yourself with other people in like in a very lived-in home, right? Where Robin says often like there's wallpaper on the walls. There are pictures on the walls. There are stories. There are stains in the carpet. Context always matters to the message that you're communicating. Now, I think evangelicals have misread verses like this one in Romans 1.16 that say, Paul writes this in the first chapter of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. What a verse. Man, that's a life verse. Um, The message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is powerful. It's life-changing. Maybe you have personally experienced that. Like your life is different because of this message of hope and redemption and Jesus has changed you. The message is is powerful. It's, It's inherently powerful. But there's always a medium in which a message is communicated. And so Paul and Barnabas realize that you can never divorce the message from the messenger or messengers. Paul and Barnabas realize that their own character is very important because you can never divorce the message from the messenger. The messenger is part of this important context that makes up communication. Paul definitely gets this because he writes often in his epistles and it's always like sometimes it struck me as a little odd, but here's one example In 2 Timothy, he's writing this letter to his disciple, Timothy. And this is one thing he says. He says, you, however, Timothy, you know all about my teaching. You know about my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. He's actually referring back to all the things that are happening on this first missionary journey. Look at this. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured? In other words, Timothy, you know me. You know my character. You know that I really do buy into that I'm personally living out these things that you're hearing from me. Character really matters. But in our world, we've often elevated personal gifting above personal character. And I think, like, if you look beyond these walls at the like broader evangelical crisis that's happening in our day, I think this is not the only thing, but one of the things underneath that. We, we all know this, this hits close to home. Like how many pastors, how many leaders do you know stories of, do you know personally who have preached one thing, but behind closed doors, they've lived something very different. Context matters. And so this applies to you in a a couple different ways. First, it's good for you to assess, uh, maybe in relationship, uh, the character of your leaders, your pastors. It's good for us to ask ourselves, like, what are we doing to the context? What are we doing in this house? Are we adding more stains to the carpet? Or are we, 
in the way that we live our lives, creating space where people can come to know Jesus, where people can belong, where people can know God. So it applies on that level, but it also applies to you personally. Because no matter what degree of Christian leader you consider yourself, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, you're always communicating something. Like you're always telling a story. And so you need to constantly be aware, awareness again, of what it is you're doing to the context in which people are receiving that story. So here's the practice that I have for you around this application. Again, simple, but not easy. The practice is simply to take inventory. Take inventory. Now that you're aware and you're practicing awareness in your life, now that you're observing yourself, you can look at yourself and you can consider, like, are there any ways um, where I might be falling short? Are there ways where I can grow? Are there relationships in my life that lack peace? Are there feelings of guilt I have? And what are the things behind those feelings of guilt? You can take inventory for yourself. Consider the log in your own eye, take inventory, right? Because character matters. And then in verses four and five and on to the end of our text this morning, these are the verses that have most, um, most moved me this week. Because so far the, the plot, like there are all these sharp turns, right? Like in verse one, Paul and Barnabas preach this message and they preach it in such a way that like the Holy Spirit moves powerfully and so many people believe. And so you're kind of like, yes, this is awesome. And then in verse two, but then a group of unbelieving Jews work up this whispering campaign and poison the minds of people who are wanting to buy into this message. Ugh. And then in verse three, but Paul and Barnabas spend considerable time there. They're preaching the word with boldness. And God is even affirming them and their message by enabling them to work signs and wonders. So it's amazing. Like, yes, things are going to work out for our protagonist. This is going to be a happy ending. Things are going to go the way that I want them to go. And then you get to verse 4. In verse 4, we see, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others sided with the apostles. And then in verse five, there was even a plot among both Jews and Gentiles together with their leaders to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and to even stone them to try to kill them. So there's not just like disunity and division, but there's disunity and division to such an extent that people are moved to rageful violence. So the story ends in this very somber, unsatisfying way. And here's the first thing that struck me as I've considered this over the past week or two, that Embittered people create division. Embittered people create 
division. If bitterness isn't dealt with in healthy, redemptive ways, then it can have really tragic ramifications. And we see that here. This group of unbelieving Jews are moved to such bitterness and resentfulness and rage. And it not only creates division, but has like giant tragic ramifications, like division along with violence. Embittered people create division. If your bitterness or resentment isn't handled in appropriate and healthy and redemptive ways, then it can have tragic ramifications. So think about that on a personal level. Like it's really dangerous if you're not even aware of yourself enough to know when there's real bitterness and resentment in your heart. That makes you a really dangerous person. But if you can practice being aware, then maybe you can start to observe like, man, I'm noticing this bitterness that's just creeping in and it's taking root in my heart. And if you're aware enough to notice that, then maybe you can have conversations with people. Maybe you can be in a relationship because bitterness thrives in isolation, but bitterness is healed in relationships with people. So all of us, like it's just not these people 2,000 years ago that experienced bitterness. You experience bitterness too. So do you have any bitterness in your heart right now? Or when you do, because you will at some point, how, how will you go about handling that? Remember, bitterness thrives. It flourishes in isolation, but it can be healed in relationship. But um, I've also been considering these last few verses. And I think one of the reasons that they've moved me so much is because I'm, I'm just realizing like, man, is this a narrative that never ends? Disunity and division and dissension and bitter people raging against other people. Like, doesn't that sound kind of familiar? <laughs> like if you ever walk out of these doors, maybe even inside of these doors. Like, is this a narrative that, that will ever end? The writer of Ecclesiastes must be right when he wrote that there's nothing new under the sun. And so I've just been kind of consumed this week. Like, man, what division we have. And maybe part of it, so we're watching, Laura and I are watching this um, very well done documentary that Tom Hanks and some others did, um, looking at a few different decades, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Um, really, really good and really, really helpful. And so Laura and I are watching the documentary series I'm looking at the 1970s and I'm just struck. I'm like, man, there's nothing new under the sun. This is like the downward spiral of humanity. Is this a narrative that will never end? And so I've just been grieving this week. Like I've been grieving that. 
And you could be, if you have a week like that, and I've been here before, you could find yourself, and it'd be very natural for me to find myself like in sort of this pit of cynicism and despair, you know? Like, oh, look at how bad things are. Oh, things will only get worse and worse. There's no hope. Cynicism and despair, right? Have you ever been there? But I find that, that I haven't been there. And so just this morning, I'm considering like, why is that? Why is it that I'm not more cynical than I am? Why is it that I'm not despairing more than I am? And I think this is one of the reasons why. So I'll, I'll leave this here. Because we just, so we just observed in the church calendar the season of Advent, and then a season, it's more than just a day, a season of Christmas. And now we're in the season of Epiphany. And so in the midst of that season, I'm meditating on the incarnation of Jesus, that God himself became man, the word became flesh. And what I realize as I fill my heart with those meditations is the depths of the incarnation of Jesus. Like Jesus lowered himself to the pit of humanity in his suffering and in his death on the cross. And so because, because of that, like Jesus can be there with us in our own despair. When we feel like, man, we're just getting down like into the pit of humanity. As you're aware, you can become aware of like, but God is here with me and I'm not lonely. Like, and it's just a really sweet thing. Like the depths of the incarnation of Jesus. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus that's spreading across the globe that we see starting here in these early chapters in the book of Acts. And so at the end of this story, we see that the kingdom keeps going. Like no matter the opposition, no matter the division, the kingdom of Jesus keeps growing and expanding and flourishing on earth as it is in heaven. So I had a mentor I heard him say one time, what would you do if you knew that you were completely safe in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God keeps going. And as followers of Jesus, we're part of that kingdom. And we're completely safe with Jesus, our King. Isn't that good news? Man, that warms my heart and heals my heart of any cynicism, hopelessness, or despair I may feel. And so now we get to go to the communion table and we say it and we really mean it that this is the highlight of our time of worship together. Because it's at this moment when we come into physical contact with the depths of the incarnation of Jesus. Like that he was willing to lower himself, that he was willing to take on such suffering because of his love for you and he can be with you.
like physically, spiritually, in ways that you can't even wrap your mind around or understand, Jesus is with you. So you can come forward for communion with a lot of hope and with deep intimacy and fellowship with Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for these stories in the book of Acts. And I'm grateful that even these historical narratives, like we can find so much that connects with us. So thank you this morning for meeting us. And I pray now that you would meet us in communion, that we wouldn't miss the power and the depth that is here, that is more than just bread and wine. But Jesus, you're here in a very real sense. You're here with us. Amen.